Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel, Love Marriage. Back in January, on this show, we discussed the rising tension between Ukraine and Russia with New York Times Moscow Bureau Chief Anton Troyanovsky and Yale historian Marcy Shore. Remember that? It seems like so long ago, actually. I mean, I remember it, but it seems like a bazillion, gazillion years ago. And I remember wondering, I mean, we asked Anton, we were like, isn't invasion really going to happen? And It sort of seemed like it was not going to happen right then. I know, I know. And now I feel like Uh it's like... Yeah, the episode in which I was naive. Um, We've all spent a lot of time since that episode worried about civilians in Ukraine and where all of this is headed. And back then, we were in the dark about, as you say, like whether this was actually, I mean, it seemed implausible to me. Um, That was incredibly, it just seemed to me, I just thought, what a stupid idea. He's surely not that stupid, but that was wrong, as we'll be finding out over the next two episodes when we talk about Ukraine. And, and now that Putin has made his move, I don't know what comes after that. Um, I mean, I, I think that I'm not alone. So we wanted to talk to somebody who has a lot of experience in Ukraine uh, and, ha- and is a journalist and has been organizing coverage there. And we have found the perfect guest for that. That's right. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Katya Soldak of Forbes. Katya is a New York-based journalist and the editorial director of Forbes Media's International Editions. Katya, who is Ukrainian-American, is the director of the 2020 documentary, The Long Breakup, about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, and the author of the memoir essay, This is How Propaganda Works, about growing up in the Soviet Union. Her strongest focuses are Eastern Europe and anything related to post-Soviet territory, and she's been working with Forbes Ukraine to share coverage from the conflict. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're very happy to have you here. Um, as we just mentioned, you've been, you've covered Eastern Europe and specifically uh, Ukraine for a while. Uh, I know that your own parents just left that country across the western border from Kharkiv. Have you been in touch with them? Can you talk about how they're doing? Yeah, it was a, such an ordeal. It was ima- hard to imagine that it would ever happen. But when it was happening, we were also in disbelief that it was happening. And right now they crossed the border through Moldova to Romania, and now they're safe in Romania, and we're trying to figure out the next steps. I am in touch with them, but uh, during the moment of moments of evacuation, we were in touch uh, all the time, day and night, navigating every step of what they were making. I could never imagine the way evacuation happens. And now when we've done it with them and I help a few other people and everybody is helping each other, I understand that it's a stressful process where nobody knows what's gonna happen next. You don't know which road to take, where airstrikes are gonna happen, where to stay for the night, if the road is gonna be you know, exploded and you can drive through it. You don't know which checkpoint is gonna be open, how many people are gonna be there, thousands or hundreds of thousands, and what's gonna happen after you cross, who's gonna meet you, are you gonna have a place to stay? And uh, this is what my parents have been through. And this is what uh, millions, not millions, but at this point, thousands of people are going through. So that's uh, the update on that. Could, just to help us picture that, I mean, are you talking like you're, are you talking by cell phone? Are they in a car, like with a map trying to drive through the countryside to get somewhere? And you're like, turn right, turn left. How does, you know, what is happening? Well, my, when my parents were leaving Kharkiv, the tanks were coming in that morning moving into the main 
avenues. And my parents were very scared. It was early in the morning. There were a couple of other cars driving with them. It was loosely coordinated by somebody from the United States who already evacuated a few other people. So they had a telegram channel where they communicated. And also they downloaded a couple of uh, walkie-talkie apps where they were communicating. But at the end, they were on their own. And when they were driving, sometimes they didn't have reception. So the map was not working we didn't know where they were. When I say we, I mean me and my sister, we both live in the United States. They shared their location with us through iPhone, but again, it was not always coming through. Sometimes we didn't know where they were. Sometimes we had to call them and make sure that we understand where they are, where they're gonna stay for the night. Uh, you know, all of these details, we tried to make sure we know where they are in case if something happens. They described that the roads, when they were leaving, it was only the third or the fourth day of the war. Right now, it's probably worse, but roads were empty. There were no signs because Ukrainian side took all the signs down. So if the enemy comes in, they wouldn't know names of towns or names of villages. So they were lost as well. They didn't know which way to go, left or right, what it meant. So it was very, very difficult for them, especially because they're not super adventurous people. They're just people who like to live, plant, controlled life where they know what they're doing. And then they were just thrown into this adventure. So, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, they were very uncomfortable, out of place. I would say that they would break, they would almost break down at any moment, but somehow they supported each other. You know, if the stepfather was sort of falling apart and the mother was, holding it together and then they would switch. Um, during this process, it's, it's all about business. You don't really let emotions come through because as soon as you start feeling something, you fall apart. These are the people who lived all their lives in Kharkiv. This is the city that's been heavily bombed, uh, shelled, you know, destroyed by now. And for them to leave everything that they worked for you know, all the yeah, apartments, you know, whatever belongings that they had, and they left with a small backpack or two, you know, for him and for her, but there are no suitcases, there is like nothing, you know, just a change of clothes, and that's it, something that you would need during the emergency situation, and the moment they would think about that, my mom would just start crying, so the only way to do it would be like not to feel, not to think, just to keep going, trying to navigate the road, trying to call the volunteers at the border who would need them, you know, not to take it like too, too hard, just to kind of power through. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how we all did it. We still continue doing it as well as thousands of other people are doing it. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that they reached safety. And in the middle of all of this, trying to track your parents leaving the country, you've also been coordinating Forbes U.S. coverage of Ukraine with reporters and editors um, from Forbes Ukraine. And can you talk to us a little bit about the difficulties of doing that and read to us from some of their work? At Forbes, we have a big team of people. So everyone is working on different stories. But I mostly facilitated connection with Forbes Ukraine, where we had reporters on the ground. And uh, people there, they evacuated to the western side of, U of Ukraine, but uh, most of the editorial people, according to what I know, stayed in Kyiv. And uh, it's hard for them to, to cover the news because the sirens go on, the possibility of, of an airstrike is high. So uh, they go back and forth between shelters and their desks and computers. 
reporting on things like this in the time of crisis, it's, it's really hard, but I, you know, so far we got all the news on time, everything is uh, covered. We check the accuracy of the information. Uh, they know what they're doing because they are on the ground and they've been reporting from Ukraine on Ukraine all these months and years. So they know exactly which sources to trust, which sources not to trust. You know, they know towns, they know cities, they know names. So it's extremely helpful to have them. And, uh, you know, just trying to do your best. And I'm trying to do my best as well. I wonder if you could read to us a little bit from some of the recent coverage. Yes, of course. Of course. I'm going to read you about Kharkiv. Kharkiv was under intense shelling from 2 to 3 p.m. on February 28. Dozens of people are dead and hundreds are wounded, wrote Anton Gerashenko, advisor to the Minister of the Interior. Russian ministry, Russian military are attacking residential building and heavily populated areas. As a result of the shelling in Kharkiv, 15 military personnel and 16 civilians were hospitalized with injuries, one civilian death reported so far. The number of wounded and dead may change as shelling continues in Kharkiv. There are a lot of fires, everyone is hiding as best they can. Anastasia Nish, the founder of the Kharkiv startup Yulomia, told Forbes Ukraine. Replenishing food supplies in Kharkiv is currently a difficult task. People have to wait in long lines. There are up to 200 people in supermarkets, says Nish. And of course, things have changed since then. It became much worse. What I've seen so far from the pictures, from the videos that people from Kharkiv sent to me, it's destroyed. The center of the city, uh, university, some of the landmark churches, uh, even just simply residential areas, they are shelled, they're burned. It's really hard to imagine the impact of, of what happened. And there is no point in, in what happened as well, because you can't use this city in any capacity. You destroyed it, you changed, you turned people against, you know, the, mili the Russian military, but um, the city looks destroyed. I was in Kharkiv in April, 2021 20, for months. And I got a chance to enjoy living in the city and see what it looks like, not as a tourist, but as a person who lives there with my family. And it was a beautiful, lovely city, manicured, you know, with very nice little benches, little cute shops and cafes. It's the second largest city in Ukraine with beautiful supermarkets and some old style, European style architecture. Now I look at the pictures that, you know, are posted or sent to me. It's burnt. It's black, it's, uh, you know, it's ruined, it's, there's smoke everywhere. It's impossible to imagine how it happened, but it happened. The city is destroyed. Other cities in Ukraine maybe are not, at this point, are not destroyed as much, but Kharkiv is very close to the border. So I imagine that it's very easy for the Russian military to just shell it from without actually getting into the city or too close or too far into Ukraine. So it's a very easy target. That piece was by, and you'll help me out, I hope, with this name, Darina? Darina Antonyuk. Darina, okay. How is that reporter doing? She's not in Ukraine. She okay. is in Riga. She got stuck in Riga. She went for, a, um, for some journalistic conference and she couldn't come back. Her mother is in Ukraine, in some town, isolated from a lot of other people, and she's worried about her mother, of course. So um, 
I should mention that we are speaking to Katya on March 4th, Friday, um, and the news is advancing. It is at a terrific pace. And I should say we have um, some wonderful, some of Whitney's students are working on the show with us this semester, and they were helping me to prepare questions for you. And But their articles are coming at such frequency. They were, you know, the pace of the coverage is so intense. And I was thinking about the difficulty also of describing the big picture. Um, and just yesterday, there was a piece that mentioned, um, you know, about 875,000 people have fled Ukraine over the past week. And and you mentioned Romania. Um, and of course, there are folks also going to Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Moldova. And there was also a recent decision by Ukraine and Russia to provide humanitarian corridors to evacuate civilians and to deliver food and medicine to the areas with the most violence. And because so much of the statements coming out of Russia are not accurate. Um, like their descriptions of what is happening seem so obviously to be false. So how should we understand, and especially like listening to these individual stories of displacement, I'm just wondering how much these humanitarian corridors, this decision will change things for people trying to leave Ukraine or is in the case of your colleague, possibly trying to go back in. Will it actually make things easier for Ukrainians to evacuate or will there still be other difficulties for them? To be honest, I didn't get a chance to check up on this, the status of this green corridor, but last time I saw it was not going to happen. I don't think they agreed on that. Did you check recently? Did you check today? Let's check. Yeah, let's check. I think that it was in the news, I feel like late last night, and it was in the March. Oh, so you think that they reversed the decision that's in your March 3rd roundup? Well, that's, uh, you know, so much is happening. So this is the aspect that I didn't get a chance to check myself. Sure. But last time I saw, there was no agreement on that. I think they said no green corridors. Um, Reuters is reporting that it happened from 21 hours ago. But one hour ago from the Washington Post, Russia is not cooperating on proposed humanitarian corridor in Kherson, Ukrainian officials say. Um, Here's CNN saying... They agreed on the idea of corridors, but... We don't know for sure if this is going to happen. And even if they agree on something, I wouldn't trust too much into whatever agreement is going to take place. Things are still going to be very difficult, and you you, you can't really trust that it's going to be possible to do things peacefully. I mean, I, you know, Putin, as you were saying, he's already shelling residential areas. So why would he want to allow humanitarian aid to come to any of these towns. He's doing inhumane things in them. You know, I don't understand. It made no sense to me why he would make, it made sense to me as a human being why he would want to make such an agreement, but he is not a person who I would attribute normal motives to. Right. I just saw in the news that AFP reported that in the call with German Chancellor Putin said that they're not bombing Ukrainian cities, that it's absolutely false propaganda. And this is no matter how many times I, you know, we all get used to hear things like this and trying to get used to it. It's just astonishing to hear these kinds of things. There's this evidence, there are videos, there are eyewitnesses. And then the president of the country is telling to another leader of another country that they're not doing it. It's really something. It's terrifying. I find that, 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 we saw some of that with our president, Trump. Like, I remember his very first press conference when the uh, Sean Spicer said, well, his crowd was very quite large, you know, and that, that sort of deliberate lying means things, right? It means 
it means dangerous things. And whenever you see leaders doing it, it's, it's really frightening because it, 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 it implies that they have become untethered from reality or that they believe they have the power to be untethered from reality. I, I'm also reminded of, I will have to check on who this was, but I think it was Cheney who said, uh, uh, the American uh, politician who said, you know, we create our own reality. And that was when we were invading Iraq, uh, another extremely stupid and dangerous war that America happened to start. And that's what seems like Putin's doing. Like he thought he could create his own reality here, basically. And then I think, of course, we can also, I mean, see other precedents. I remember Trump also lied about how um, people seeking asylum were being treated at the border, which were some of our earliest episodes. And my family is Sri Lankan. So watching um, an authoritarian leader lie about shelling their own citizens is something I've certainly seen before. And it's horrifying every time it happens. And I mean, Whitney mentioned before... um, you know, talking about your your parents being displaced, but then also, um, and then you were mentioning Kharkiv. I'm wondering also about people who, people some people are leaving and others are, are not able to leave. And you were describing the city. And so some people are still there, of course. And the first Ukrainian city, Kherson, has fallen into Russian control. Um, that happened just very recently. Um, who knows how things are moving even as we're speaking. I'm wondering um, what this means for the Ukrainian citizens of Kherson, and as if if more cities are occupied by Russian forces, what will happen to the people left behind? Is there any sense of how this is unfolding for those unable to leave, or who don't want to? Well, in Kharkiv, a lot of people didn't leave. A, because they didn't believe that things can get so bad. B, because they had families that couldn't be moved. Somebody's disabled or somebody's elderly. It's not possible. And some people just want to stay because they love their town, their city, and they want to defend their country. The level of patriotism skyrocketed. It was always high since the Maidan revolution and the first invasion when it just started in 2014. But this particular war turned people even somewhat friendly and still open to something or to open to some Russian propaganda. They just became very patriotic and they are ready to defend their country. So they stayed there because they want to be there. They want to fight the enemy. And I cannot speak for Kherson because I don't know anyone there, but based on what I see in other occupied areas and in Kharkiv, if they're gonna be occupied, people are going to fight. They're not going to be, you know, following the rules or welcoming the occupiers. They're going to make their life hell. They're going to die. People, Ukrainian people will die, but they're not going to stop. This is the spirit that is in Ukraine right now. And this is what I see everywhere. So if you saw the video on the internet, maybe not of a woman who ran into a guy on the road, there was a Russian military guy with a gun and there are tanks behind him and she doesn't have anything. And he tells her, show me your passport. And she just starts fighting him. She's like, I, who are you? Why did you come here? I'm not supposed to show you my passport. And you think she would be scared. She would be trying to show the passport and at least, you know, get away safe and alive. But no, she confronts him. She fights. And that's the spirit of a lot of people in Ukraine right now. And those who are armed and stronger, they're just going to fight. And in Kherson, I, I can't imagine that they're just going to be, you know, taken over and everything is going to be just fine.
So as we're watching the news about um, some people who are trying to leave the Ukraine, um, there have been a number of reports specifically about um, foreign students or international students. And the UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism released a statement condemning racism directed at Black Africans, Indian and Pakistani nationals, and people of Middle Eastern descent and, and others who are attempting to leave and who are facing racism at the borders and in other contexts. And I was wondering what that discrimination looks like for black and brown communities in Ukraine and if there are any ways that are any way to combat that racism that's preventing them from crossing borders. Well, I'm not really sure about what's happening on the border. To be honest, I don't know much about that subject. I just know that not on the border in Ukraine, there is a lot of support for IT people who are of, you know, from different nations. And there is a whole movement to help evacuate those startups or those companies if they work, some of them work. There is a big uh, friendly cooperation between Ukrainian and people from other countries to bring their people back. So I don't know about the border, but I know that inside Ukraine, that discrimination is not really, you know, something that's taking place out in the open. Uh, it, from what I know, people are helping people and that's what they do. Your documentary, The Long Breakup, uh, shares the historical challenges of Ukraine sort of trying to escape from Russia's embrace. Do you think Ukraine has a chance? To, you were saying like people will continue to fight, you know, but every military expert that I hear on American media is saying like, yeah, yeah, okay, they're fighting. And Russia did a bunch of dumb things at the beginning of this, but Russia is going to win. Do you agree with that? I don't want to confuse my wishful thinking with what the accuracy of prediction is, but I just saw the reports from Bellingcat. I don't know how credible it's considered here, but in Europe, people trust their research. They say that Russia already used up a lot of their military. They may not have a lot of resources. I do think that Russia didn't use some of the really scary weapons that they have. And I'm sure it could be an option because judging by everything that's happening right now, including capturing the nuclear plant in Zaporizhia yesterday, I think that things can get worse. And in that case, you know, I don't know who can find those, who can fight those dangerous weapons. And I don't know who is going to win in that situation. But if we stay on more conventional path, I think Ukraine is Ukraine's military right now is strong enough. But you also should not dismiss the spirit of people. They're fighting for their land, and I don't want to sound like a you know patriotic lunatic. But motivation means a lot. Even athletes, when they fight or when they compete in competitions, they need to believe in themselves, and they win. If they think that they don't win, they don't do well. Same with this. They have military capabilities. They have a lot of advising from different countries. They just had uh, some special combat coming from Israel, some veterans from Israel. We don't know truly the capacity of Ukrainian army, but I just know that in Russia, even though their soldiers are demoralized and it looks like things are not going the way they planned, they still have pretty dangerous weapons that they didn't use. And in that case, you know, nobody knows. When you say pretty dangerous weapons, are you talking like tactical nuclear devices? Are you talking cluster bombs or what specifically are you thinking of? Chemical weapons. Oh, yeah, that's right. Forgot about that. Yeah. I was going to say, based on what you're saying, like this, this idea of, of fighting a war 
when you're fighting and you have an actual reason to fight. This is the thing that I think I feel like Putin just doesn't get. And I'm not going to say that I know more than that guy, but I, I do know the feeling of being I was I was a reporter in Iraq during the war. And when you're there and you think you might die the next day, the soldiers who were there and certainly me thought when you go to bed, if I died, how would this be explained to my children? What would people say? People say that I was doing a good thing or a bad thing. Is this a good reason for me to die? And no amount of disinformation can get that thought out of your head. And so the Russian soldiers, I believe, are thinking those same thoughts. And those, they don't have a good answer to that question. I do know that Ukrainians probably do. This is my country has been invaded and I'm going to fight for it. That is at least an answer that you can live with. Um, and I think that, that Putin did not take that into account. I think you're exactly right. I think you got it. It does seem like there are... Yeah, a number of stories that indicate that, I mean, you were talking about the motivation of the Ukrainians and the lack of motivation for the Russians seems also to be presenting itself in different ways. And then also what you were, you were mentioning, um, how this was analogous perhaps to, in some ways, like almost athletic motivation. I was reading about a tennis pro who has returned to fight in Ukraine um, and also about a trumpeter who is making his contribution by playing the anthem and we've seen these really moving stories of ordinary Ukrainian civilians who should not have to do this, of course, resisting Russian invasion and occupation. And um, in a recent episode, um, we spent some time considering Ukraine's literary history and community. And so I was wondering if you knew anything about what the, the arts community's resistance looks like. We have several prominent stars in Ukraine, poets and musicians that are uh, trying to keep the spirit up for Ukrainians. I see their campaigns on Instagram where they record little videos, they sing songs, they come out, they perform, they basically communicate with their audience and trying to tell them that we're here for you, with you, and they try to uplift the spirit by either reading their poems and having gatherings, even in this dangerous time, or singing. Um, there is a, you know, a lot of support that's coming from the artistic world. I also know that outside of Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainian artists or Ukrainian-American or Canadian artists, they're doing a lot to support Ukraine, organizing either fundraisers or flash mobs or something that would bring awareness or support the spirit or push for some cause like no fly zone. Just yesterday, I met with a group of Ukrainian artists here in New York in Shevchenko society, and they were planning something, some kind of action, some performance uh, uh, in New York to bring attention to the problem. So people in all areas of lives are very, very active. But I would say that these two prominent mus musician, this musician, uh, Bakarchuk from this very popular band, Akian Elze and the poet from Kharkiv, Serhii Jadan. They're doing a lot for U Ukrainian community right now. We talked about Jadan's work in that earlier episode with the Yale historian Marcy Shore. Um, I, and I'm just curious to know, like specifically, do you have any, like, you know, he's, is he, he's in Ukraine right now? He's, he's okay. He's. If you follow his Instagram account, you will see. We'll he's go there. check. He's ready to fight. He's recording videos. He's uh, getting together with other people. They're checking up on things. He's not going to leave. People like Jadan or Vakarchuk, or if you look at every prominent leader in Ukraine, they're staying. 
and they're working on behalf of their country. They're not hiding, they're not escaping. Maybe they evacuated their families, I can imagine that, but, but journalists, uh, TV hosts, people who feel like they can contribute into this fight and win and support the country by being there. They are in Ukraine and they're not leaving. I feel like there is, other people have mentioned this, I feel like we're, the, the, the world is dividing again into authoritarian and non-authoritarian sort of spheres of influence. And we have had on this show, we talked a lot about authoritarianism in countries like Poland, even though Poland is now part of NATO and supposedly helping out with this. But I mean, the Law and Justice Party is not, is a party that's more Putin-esque than a Democratic Party. And there's Hungary's government and there's Bolsonaro in, in Brazil. So there's this this kind of like axis of authoritarian leaders who are imitating and, and, and working with each other. And Ukraine, the West and democratic regimes have not been stopping them physically. Ukraine is the first country to fight Putin, a first European country, let's put it that way, because certainly the, the rebels in Syria fought against Putin and certainly people in Chechnya fought against Putin, but the first European country to fight against him, stand up, and fight him. And the way that Zelensky, that video that he did where he said, I'm here and my cabinet is here, I think is incredibly motivating and showing the possibility that, that in fact, what, what democracies are going to have to stand up against this at a certain point. I agree with you. I think that Ukraine takes up this special place where the country was very young and they got a taste of freedom and what it's like to live in a liberal society. And Ukrainian government has never had the capacity to create authoritarian regime, uh, like in Russia, for instance. In Russia for 20 decades, and I've been following it very closely, that little period of liberalization that happened gradually was changing. And then after 2011, I think the screws were tightening and it was getting worse and worse but there was some kind of strategic movement in that direction from the Kremlin. In Ukraine, they never had that. They always had these rulers who would maybe steal and maybe they would be more corrupt, but they never had the strategic power and will to put the country under control and create some kind of authoritarian state. We're talking about 40 million people. You know, It's not easy to control 40 million people. In Russia, they control, what, 150 million because the machine is very strong. And in Ukraine, it was just growing and developing and people were traveling to the West and they saw how the West lives and, you know, democratic freedoms are very appealing to people. It was wild, wild West that gradually turned into this democratic market, free market oriented society. And, uh, you know, Ukrainian presidents, maybe they were, you know, we've changed what, six presidents so far. In neighboring countries like Belarus and Russia, the rulers are sitting there for 20 years. There is a striking difference between that. But Ukraine has never been officially part of the EU or any European Union or any European society. So they are fresh. They're fighting for what they want to have. And most people, they don't even really know the ideological side of what they're fighting for. They just want to live in a happy place where they can work, they can follow the rule of law, they can do things, they can, you know, they don't expect much from the government. They don't want to live in the police state. And in that case, they are like the West, but they're not part of the West. So they have to work a lot harder to preserve that freedom. And when Putin tries to take it away from them, 
it's too late. People, 40 million people, about 40 million people, they ha have already tasted the freedom. They don't want to go back to how Russia lives and whispering, you know, being afraid to talk on the phone, where journalists get killed, where people cannot speak up, where most people who want to say something, they have to leave the country. Ukraine, like Ukraine became this oasis for people coming from Russia and from Belarus and from, you know, whatever country is welcoming them. I mean, whatever country did not seem good for people, Russian speaking people live. They came to Kiev and they started living in Kiev where, you know, yes, it's Ukraine, but it's also comfortable enough for them to continue doing what they're doing. It's scary for somebody like Putin. He wants to take it away, but it's impossible to take it away because the country is already developing in their own capacity. It's like, un it's, it's out of control. It's just going in its own direction. Well, I think that's an under-remarked um, reason for why Putin felt compelled to make this invasion because having a functioning democracy right next to him like that is a bad example. And people would want to go there, right, instead of be in Russia. And that's a problem for him. We're going to need to wrap up, but I wanted you to um, tell us the best ways that our listeners, if they want to support Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees, where they can go, where are trusted places, where are safe and, and, and good places for them to go and help. There is this organization in New York called Razom, Razom for Ukraine. This organization is very trustworthy and they can always direct people to other organizations and charities where they can contribute. I think in any way to assist Ukrainian refugees or people in Ukraine by donating money to something that seems credible, uh, you know, any medical organizations or organizations that help children, that's great too. From where I stand, I think it's very important to just not fall into the trap of Russian propaganda. And I think it's one of the ways how your audience can, can, can contribute. I don't know if your audience would ever fall into that trap, but it's important to remember that Ukraine is one nation, that regardless, whatever the root of the civilization was, they developed into a separate nation that wants to have their own course. There are no Nazis in Ukraine. Russian military is not freeing anyone. They're just bombing cities. And uh, just remembering that message. The NATO was not suffocating Russia through Ukraine. All the messages that Putin is saying, they're false. And I think just, you know, being aware of that, it's also a great way to support Ukraine in this fight. Katya, we want to thank you for joining us. And li listeners, you can read more of what Katya says on Twitter. And also, please make sure to check out Forbes coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for ongoing updates. Katya, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf with help from students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City and the University of Minnesota. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lithub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net. 
where if you're an educator and want to use our podcast in the classroom, our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. We'll provide links to all this stuff in our show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading. Here's to a free Ukraine.